Welcome to Beyond the Letters, a Heinemann podcast featuring LGBTQ plus educators, their stories, strategies, and practical advice for creating safe and inclusive educational spaces for queer youth and educators alike. If this is your first time listening, we invite you to go back and listen to our preview episode. Welcome to the podcast. This is Kate Roberts. And I am Maggie Beatty Roberts. And we like to start by reflecting on one reason why we are doing this podcast in the first place. Well, you know, earlier, Maggie and I were talking about the teachers in our lives. Like over the course of, of our conversations, one thing that's come up is that sometimes there's not a lot teachers can do or feel like they can do to fight the systems they're in, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ kids or colleagues. But as Maggie and I were talking this morning, like, it's amazing what the small things can do. I'm not saying there shouldn't be big things too, but like, I remember there were teachers in my growing up who like, did tiny, tiny things to like, help me feel not completely alone, (laughs) to feel like I had a place in my classroom, in my school. And in a way, I can look at those tiny things and be frustrated by them, right? Because they were small and I deserved more as a young queer kid. But on the other hand, they saved my life. Mm. Like the one closeted teacher in my high school who like just gave me a knowing look once. Yeah. (laughs) That one look of solidarity saved my life. So I guess the reason we want to highlight today for why we're doing this podcast is because I think you would agree, Maggie, we both believe that teachers can, in fact, make the difference for kids, sometimes in small ways and sometimes in big ones. So today uh, we're talking to Shay Martin, who is a high school teacher in Boston and a diversity, equity and inclusion coordinator and consultant. And we're excited to talk today. Hi, Shay. Hey. How's it going? It's good. So uh, we've been entering into these conversations thinking a little bit about like what moments in our lives were like those critical moments that caused us to become the educators we are today. What stories do you have? What moments do you have that sort of made the difference for you? Yeah, I think um, the most defining moment for me is like a queer teacher is is both this like really vivid and visceral memory that I have, but also probably like the, the memory that I've tried to erase. And I actually didn't even think about it until a couple of days ago. And it happened in the fall of 2017, which was like my third year in the classroom where I just like finally found like my groove as a teacher. And I had just transitioned from a struggling public school to a struggling school that was part of like a national charter network. And it was one of those like schools that feels like a cult. Yes. Yep. <laughs> like everyone's family and they like give you cool t-shirts and they have like really cool flare pins, which I was like, yes, like flare pins, thank you. But I also was working like 90 hours a week and just like trying to assimilate into this like life as a teacher in this organization. But the cool thing was I up until that point, I, I felt so much more supported in like my development as a teacher. And I was like, yeah, like I'm making progress with my students. 
And I just remember we started each morning with like this like morning meeting, which was like in part like pep rally to get us through the day, but mostly this laundry list of like to do items for us. Right. <laughs> and the night before I'd, I heard about the student in the school um, and this the school was like in a really tough part of Jacksonville, Florida and uh, 100% uh, black and brown kids and just like an awesome community. And I heard about this student the night before from a coworker and a student had been requesting to go by a different name and uh, use different pronouns and they had been requesting to use a different bathroom and I had like heard some just like really negative talk about this student behind their back but then also like heard that they were doing it to the person's face as well and I was in Florida and I wasn't technically out yet as non-binary to my coworkers. I knew I was queer but not non-binary and so I really struggled with like how to address this and so it came up in the meeting and I remember that I was sitting like with my back to another outspoken teacher and this teacher was like the poster teacher for the school. So she was female teacher of color with great results, strong relationships with teachers and students. Like she was on the website, like she was like the teacher that everyone wanted to be. And so the principal says something like, now I know we have a student that has come up in conversations and like has asked to use different bathrooms and we're figuring out how to deal with it. And this teacher of the year behind me shouts out, well, like unless I see a medical sex change on file, I'm going to keep calling her by what her mother named her. And there was just like this dripping disgust in her voice. Mm. She used those pronouns. I remember that moment, like the hair on the back of my neck just like stood up and at that moment, I could feel like everyone both looking like away from me, but also looking at me. And so like, I wasn't, I wasn't out as non-binary. And so I was like, well, I could just like sit here and like, just figure out how to deal with it later. But I feel like there's so many moments, like as a teacher and educator, like we need to like speak up in front of our colleagues and like in, in a room full of people. And so like, I spoke up and I remember that I like tried to use everything to diffuse the situation. So like the whole like respecting the child and like legal mandates and data on mental health and teens and like everything that I said was just like hitting a brick wall. And it was like the loneliest I've ever felt as an adult and as a teacher. Because I remember that like the silence in the room as we were going back and forth. And I remember the teacher like questioning like, me and like whether or not I respected her as a teacher and of course she cares about kids but like kids can't just decide what they want to be called and so like weeks weeks later we had like a mediation and the principal I remember she asked me for resources and nothing was ever done and I remember that like kids used to continue to get demerits um for like making fun of the student and I would see it logged in like our discipline system and adults continue to like make comments and meetings and I continue to like interrupt and disrupt those, but I don't think every anything like ever actually got done with those teachers. And then a month later, um, that student was involuntarily committed for a suicide attempt. And I remember like hearing about that through like word of mouth. And I also remember the silence from like the administration, the silence from the teachers and from kids, and like no one ever talked about it. And I think for me as an educator, like that was a moment that I understood like a lot of things. So like one, like self-care and like what I need to do for myself to take care of myself in that moment, but two, also community and like, the need for other like allies and other teachers and support systems in that school for not only the students, but also teachers. 
and then just authenticity in my practice. Like I, I remember beating myself up about what, whether or not I should have come out as non-binary in the school and maybe that would have like protected that student or whether or not I was as visible as I could have been as a queer woman. But I also like kind of understood just how complicated it can be in schools for queer teachers and queer students. And so I think when I'm th- when I think about like one critical moment that has shifted the ways in which I engage in my practice and in my classroom, it has to be like that moment, like that month of, of teaching uh, when everything was happening with one student. And I didn't even teach the student, but they had a profound impact on the way that I approached this work. You know, stories tell that moment. Like I, I can feel the heaviness of the silence you mm-hmm. describe. Mm-hmm. You know, the silence in the room when you were first stepping up to disrupt that, the silence in the school community after the moment of crisis for the, for the student, and just butting up against that silence with the many moments that the collective we need to step into those moments of silence and speak up uh, in front of colleagues. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes silence can almost be like as detrimental Mm-hmm. As you know, someone's like rude comments or like oppressive statements. Like I think that the silence of a community that is supposed to be supportive can be heartbreaking. And I think there are just too many times where our students and, and colleagues feel that. So I think that like it's so imperative that we figure out a way that everyone can feel empowered or equipped enough to be able to speak up. Well, and the idea that it can't rest all in that situation on your shoulders, right? Mm. Like as a queer person, I can't change the systems. I need my straight allies to step up with me, right? Yeah. Like when I was teaching, I was not very evolved. I was not, I, I wouldn't have identified myself as an activist. Uh, I was just gay. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm gay. And that made me super edgy. And uh I remember that, uh, you know, I was teaching and the the guy who taught next to me, he was like this cute, straight, very popular teacher. And uh, he came to me and he said, you know, Kate, I just keep hearing our kids use the F word. And he's like, I realized you can't do this. I have to do this, right? You can't solve this because if you bring it up, everyone would be like, well, of course, Kate brought it up. She's gay, right? Like, I've got to be the one to take it on. And it was such a moment for me to realize that, like, we need those allies because we're vulnerable. In yes. We don't have the protections around us. Yeah. When I also, I think that you speak to the complications, you know, what I wrote down in my notes was just how complicated this is for queer teachers, non-binary teachers, queer students, non-binary student, students, that, that this is, you know, the way that you also kind of couch this in the system of education, right? That that there are all of these layers of conversation points, decision points around this work. And sometimes I think for me as even identifying in the community, it's hard to figure out how to start. That's right, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, in some ways, um, I think I was blessed in that, like, I have never been able to, I think, in the classroom, like, pass, quote unquote, for straight. I think when I came out to my students my first year, I was very nervous about it. And then my students were like, of 
course we know you're gay. Like, and, and my wife at the time, or my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, they're like, is that Caucasian lady your girlfriend? Um, so they like had picked up really quickly. And it was like the cutest thing in the world. But I've never had that whole like, should I come out? Should I not come out? And like, uh, students questioning whether or not I was queer. But I think that that's a reality for a lot of teachers. And so I think that it's important for like, teachers who are allies to know that like, just because like, your colleagues are not out to you does not mean they're not there. The same with students, like just because you know, or you think you know that none of your kids identify as LGBTQ plus doesn't mean that they're not actually there and that like allyship and disruption shouldn't be a part of like your everyday practice. Well, it's like that thing you talked about in your story in a slightly different context about like when everyone was looking at you and not looking at you at the same mm. time, right? Which just brings up that idea of like how visible and invisible we can be at yeah. the exact same moment. Sometimes like I'm visibly gay, so I feel very visible in the world, but it means that sometimes I don't take as much space verbally. Do you know what I mean? Like I won't speak about being gay as often as like, not to take your story, but that Maggie will. Oh, who doesn't present. Yeah. You know, identify more femme and it is constant verbal coming mm -hmm. out narration versus a visual coming mm -hmm. out that I would argue that is more Kate's experience. <laughs> yes. I like to call it, like, I break through the big paper thing like they do in the football and I'm like, I'm here. Yeah. Like, hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> How many ways you kind of communicate, That's right. you know, all the different layers of who you are. I'm curious about you and your students, you know, how this plays out for you as a practitioner this year now with the students you teach. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to guide the conversation into what could educators do based on your work in the classroom, what suggestions would you give? Yeah, so I think there's just, there's so many ways you could start, right? And I think that the easiest way to start and something that I just have like pushed uh, for from day one is just figuring out who's represented in my classroom. And so thinking about just like your curriculum and the content, who's on your walls, what examples are you using on assignments and conversations and in culture? So like constantly thinking about like, are you reinforcing like heteronormative practices or binaries, or are you disrupting them? And I know that like it, it's going to look different depending on what you teach, right? So like right. I teach 10th grade English, so it's super easy for me because there are tons of like queer authors that I could choose from. And there are tons of different like poems and short stories and novels we could read, but it's probably going to be a little bit different for a person who teaches calculus, right? Like I'm not even sure like what that lesson looks like or what numbers or letters are used in calculus, but I imagine, right, that, yes. <laughs> that there are like problems and uh, conversations that come up where you can make sure that you are making, including everyone in the classroom, right? And so I think that the easiest way that I've found for teachers to take like the first step is just to look at who is like included, but then also left out of what you already have. And I know that in some schools, right, you have more you have more say in your curriculum and your content than in other schools. But I do think that there are little tweaks that you can make as a teacher, like whether it is like a quick write or a do now or extra credit activity or just like a, a video you're showing that makes that will make students um, one, like know you are there as an ally, but then two, also like just feel included and affirmed and celebrated in your classroom. 
yeah, the know you are there as an ally, like when I was leading with that story of how teachers changed my life, right, or saved my life, it was just that, like having a sense that there was one adult in the building that maybe sort of had my back a little bit. I even find the like, when I walk into a school now as a 45-year-old married, fully out person, like when I see those stickers, yes, I cry yeah. <laughs> every single time. I tear up because it's it sends such a message. Even if some people are doing it for lip service, it sends a message. Yeah, I think that the like the stickers are like one of like the most visible things you can do. I've always like questioned some teachers who put them up. I'm like, oh, are you really an ally? Are you not? But I feel like it doesn't matter if you're a kid, right? If you're a kid who's struggling, like if you see that sticker, you know, like I'm going to be okay in this room. And I think that that's super important for students. There's tons of resources out there. Like Glisten has a, a, like a great educator like guide, but I think just starting out with like being as visible as possible for students. Like I know in high school, I was not out at all. In fact, I was like as far in the closet as you could possibly go. Like I was in Narnia. <laughs> and like I was just like this like ultra conservative Southern Baptist with a pop collar who just like hated everything and everyone. And I remember I had this 11th grade English teacher, Miss Fitch, who was just like very much like out. She was like the leader of the GSA. And of course, it just meant I hated her because I like also loved her. 100%. Yeah. And like, I just remember like thinking back to that and knowing that like when I, when and if I needed to talk to someone, like she would be the one. But like, I, I, I think that's just so important for kids to know that there are educators there who are willing to just be a safe space, you know? I love that you say that the, you're like, even, even if you can't totally get behind the <laughs> sticker or you're just putting up the sticker because it's what everybody else is doing, the kids don't know that, right? right. Like the kids need all of these flares, these really not subtle, like really overt flares and lighthouses to go to when they're ready. Yeah. If they're ready, if they're in crisis, if they're in trouble. So your call to think about all the ways you can be visible feel really important. Yeah. I think that like, because um, there's such a stigma with being queer, um, especially where I started teaching in the South, right? Like that is just not something that people talked about and accepted all the time. And so because it is something that's supposed to be hidden, it's so important for allies to be as visible as possible. And I think that like, whether it is putting that sticker up or just like mentioning something in conversation with students and making sure that it's heard like between like you and students and also you and other teachers, so they know that you have students and teachers backs, like that's just so important for students. Absolutely. Do you have something else that you want to throw down for people? Yeah, I think something that I think is really important is just for allies to educate themselves. And when I say educate yourself, I don't mean that you have to get a degree in like women and gender studies. But I do think it's worth it to seek out resources and trainings, both like online, but also in your own community. Because I feel like no matter where you are, whether it is, you know, in the middle of nowhere in Alabama or in a place like Boston that is just like, you know, overflowing with like queerness um, and resources, I feel like just knowing that community and knowing the work that's already been done before you got there and before you started thinking about allyship is really important. And so whether that is like looking at the state level and seeing what type of programming there is or looking at like your local P flag, going to like coming out events or pride, 
those are just so important to becoming like an ally in your own community. It's great to be an ally online and like put the filter on your photo during Pride Month. It looks great. But I feel like really becoming a staple of the community is where people should start. Coming from a southern, like a small southern town, I recognize the importance of those small organizations who have been doing the work and who are like invested in the community. And so I think I really just want to encourage people to actually seek out those like buildings and those people who people who have been doing this work and like canvassing and treating these spaces for queer youth for so long of a time, like seek those people out um, and learn from them. And I, I would say like with that, there's a caveat, right? Like I would say search for a community already in existence, but make sure that that's a place that you belong as an ally, because so many times I feel like allies are super excited and want to get super invested in the community. But I feel like there are some spaces that are only supposed to be like sacred for queer folk. And so as you're looking for places to learn and to exist with the queer community, make sure that the space that you're, you're, you're seeking and the space that you find is open to allies to come and like learn and grow. Well, I think that loops right back to your story where you're talking about that critical moment for you taught you the value of community and authenticity, right? This idea that like to grow in the ways that we need to grow to not fail our kids and our colleagues and our communities like we need other people, right? I can't do it on my own. I mean, I can get a, to a certain place on the internet. <laughs> I mean, I can get to scary places on the internet. <laughs> right, I can, I can get to a certain place by reading articles and going on Twitter chats, but like ultimately I have to be with other humans who, are, who have done the work and are doing the work to, to move forward. Yeah, it takes such dedication and commitment to really be entrenched in this work for the long haul. Like I know when I was in Jacksonville, Florida, Florida, there was an amazing organization called Jasmine. They did such incredible work in a city that was just like not ready to be open and inclusive for all youth. And they had been there for so long. And so I feel like for me, right, coming in and not knowing anything about Jacksonville, coming from DC and going down to Florida, it was so important for me as a teacher to check in with them and see what like one I, what I could offer them, but also like what they could offer me as an educator, just learning the ropes and learning like the laws and learning what I could and could not do because allyship is going to look different in every state, in every city, in every town based on the laws and based on just the culture of that place. And so I feel like there are people in your communities that know probably a lot more than you do about what's going on and what's allowed um, and what avenues you can pursue to be an effective ally for your students and for your colleagues. And so definitely seek those out. Well, I love that because in a way what you're bringing up is that there's like all these ways to start, right? Like slap a sticker on your wall, get some books in the room, mention some stuff. But like what I found with other areas of my progress and evolving is that like those first steps help you to see how important the work is to motivate you to do that long haul progress, right? It's like you start to remember that kid in your starting story, right? And be like, oh, we failed them. Right. <laughs> and it hurt them. <laughs> and Shay, I feel like you also really speak to the longevity of the work, right. right? That within those first steps, there's going to be a lot of listening, a lot of researching on your own, a lot of asking questions, and that, you know, that there's a lot of 
knowledge building and, and bucket filling that we have to constantly be doing in order to walk alongside a group of people we want to support. And, and so I, I appreciate the refrain of lingering and knowledge building that you're really bringing to this series. So thank you for that. Yeah. And I, and I want to say like, I think that this, like this, this road to allyship is also something um, that can uh, bring about like a lot of guilt for people, you know, like don't beat yourself up because you weren't the, like the perfect ally on day one in the classroom. Um, I think it's something that I, I would like all teachers to think about um, and just remember, because I think it's, it's very easy to get caught up, right. From, from even me to get caught up in that, like, I wasn't able to successfully protect that student that one time, but I don't think that is something that's going to be like helpful for you in your road to supporting and uplifting other students. And so like reflect on it, but like, don't beat yourself up because you weren't able to be the perfect ally every single time. And I also think like along with like this idea of like, yes, seek knowledge. Um, you don't need to, like I said before, like have a degree or like know everything to be able to, start just being that safe space for your students tomorrow. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Yes. That this is also something that you can, it's like, you're just having a, you're having a bunch of pots on the stove boiling (laughs) at the same time. It's like you're getting smart about something and you can walk in tomorrow with a read aloud of a text that is, you know, more gender inclusive. Right. So I feel like we could talk for the next five hours, I'm ready. but we are, we are nearing the end of our timestamp here. So I think we're going to have to shift into our closing, which I think Maggie has said in a different voice each time. So I'm going to, today I'm going to say it's, time, gonna, for it's the, time for the closing five, time for the closing, closing. Hot prompts, if you will, <laughs> little window into, so Shay, first question, you'll never see me without my. Uh, you'll never see me without my pen in my pocket. And I often don't take them out of my pocket. So that means you'll never see me without ink spotted shirts as well. <laughs> That's a badge of honor. Yeah. Do you have a specific kind of pen that you prefer? I'm assuming, yes. Yes. So um, they're all like these like Bic like gel pens. And luckily for me, I have a coworker whose parent works for Bic. And so... Uh, I get them for free now, but uh, I, I just have like them on endless supply and they're just everywhere. So I always be ready to write anything down I need to. So amazing. All right. Second, your favorite article of clothing. Uh, favorite article of clothing. I'm definitely going to say my socks. What do you love about your I mean, socks? Like what? Like we got to be like, are you smart wool, thick socks? Oh, yeah. I mean, thin socks. Yeah. Are you- I think it depends on the day, right? And it, I, my how I'm feeling that day. I mean, I live in Boston now, so I've had to buy some wool socks. I just love bright socks and I love when my socks match or complement my shirt. And I just like, I, I just love colorful socks. And so if they're witty, even better, but I just love socks. Well done. Well done. We have a big debate in our household about thick socks versus thin yeah, socks. Yeah, we do. So. We do. Your first concert. Um, so I grew up playing jazz music. And so I think my first concert was actually, it's really nerdy, uh, a jazz band called the Yellow Jackets. And they're a super cool band if anyone wants to check them out. Uh, but I think like my first mainstream concert would probably have to be Eric Clapton, now that I think about it. 
I mean, Eric Clapton is not the worst, let me tell you. I mean, if you're going to go see a mainstream concert. That's right. I feel like it's a pretty, concert. like, cool concert to have. It could be a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your first queer icon. Okay, there's, like, no question with this. Um, and is it okay if it's a fictional person? Is that okay? 100%. There are okay, no Bette Porter um, taught me everything I know about being queer. I used to sneak downstairs in my parents' basement to watch the L Word on Showtime, like Showtime On Demand. Uh, I think I'm still in love with Bette Porter today, so. That's amazing. I love that. And then your current queer icon. Um, I think I'm going to say Roxanne Gay because she's amazing and fantastic. Yes, and has the best Twitter feed in the known universe. Oh, absolutely. Like, there's no one better. No one better. She stole the game. Amazing. Shay, thank you so much for your time, your work, your storytelling, your heart. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Beyond the Letters is a production of Heinemann Publishing and the Heinemann Podcast. To learn more about our guest this week, visit blog.heinemann.com.